In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's begin these few minutes together with a survey. Show of hands. Who here is an elder or eldest child? Who's the youngest child? Okay. Who falls somewhere in the middle? Okay. Another question. Who here is a parent or has taken on a parenting role or a parent-like role at some point in their lives? Okay. And the last question. Who here has parents, whether living or deceased? That's what I thought. And this is good because that means every one of us can relate to our parable today, the parable commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Indeed, it's part of the genius of Jesus' parables that he takes ordinary things like sheep, coins, bread, in order to say extraordinary things. And what's more ordinary than the family? You just showed that. All of us have a family. Now, if asked what this parable is about, family may not be your first response. Given the common title of the parable, you might say it's about the prodigal son, of course. Or it's about the Christian principles of forgiveness and reconciliation. Or it's about God's grace. Or being lost and found by that grace. After all, this parable follows two other parables, which our lectionary leaves out, But they are parables about losing and finding. In the first one, Jesus begins, Suppose that one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. The shepherd would leave the ninety-nine behind to find it, restore it to the fold, and call friends to celebrate. All is well. Second, suppose there's a woman who has ten coins and loses one. She would turn her house upside down to find it, wouldn't she? And throw a big party when she does. All is well. So it is in heaven, Jesus explains, with rejoicing over just one sinner who repents. Then he begins the third parable. There was a man who had two sons. Now, given these other two parables, we may understandably assume that we are still in the realm of supposition, of theory or allegory. And in that realm, we might assume that the welcoming father represents our gracious God. And the younger son, who, remember, took his inheritance early, ran off, squandered it on dissolute living, and then returned home, he represents lost 
and found and repentant souls. He represents all those who know that they depend on grace. And then there's the elder son. The elder son, the dutiful son who never left home and who's been caring and working for his family all this time. He, I'm sorry to say to all of you elder children, he represents those who begrudge others that grace. He's seen as too dutiful, too obedient, too angry. And so in that, he represents all those self-righteous and works-righteous legalists who refuse to include or to forgive. You don't want to be like him, right? However, when you hear this parable as a family story instead, you might find yourself actually empathizing with the elder son rather than blaming him. Yes, yes, he has a strong sense of duty and of loyalty. Yes, he works hard for his father and for his family. But when did those become bad things? Indeed, didn't we just hear a commandment saying we are supposed to honor our father and mother? Obedience is one of the ways that we show respect, duty, showing up day in and out when we feel like it and when we don't. That is one of the ways that we express love and gratitude. And so maybe the elder son's anger and frustration can't be necessarily attributed to works righteousness or to self-righteousness. Maybe there's something else going on here. He tells us what it is, doesn't he? He says to his father, I've been with you all this time, but you never celebrated me like this. His father answers, Son, you're always with me. You're always here. And all that is mine is yours. But that does not mean that the elder son doesn't need to hear that also, does it? It doesn't mean that the elder son doesn't long to be celebrated also, to be told by his father, son, I love you, and I am so glad that you are here, that you are home. Thank you. There's also a very clear other reason for the elder son's anger, isn't there? There's his younger brother. Remember him? There's the younger brother who took off leaving him holding the bag and tending to his and his father's broken hearts. And the consequences of his younger brother's actions don't just disappear because he got hungry and came home and said he's sorry. Of course, 
the younger son's repentance may be real. But we don't know that yet. All we know from the story is that he planned what he would say to his father, and then he went home and said it. Certainly the elder son, the elder brother, has no idea what his brother's motivation is yet or what he'll do next. And so it does make sense, doesn't it, that he needs some time, that he's cautious, that he's slow to forgive. There's another question lingering in this story, and that is, what will the father and the elder son do next? The story ends with an open ending. It ends with the father and the elder son standing outside. They're standing outside talking, finally. And perhaps, perhaps when the father hears his son's anger and hurt, perhaps he realizes that he has lost not one son, but two. One to a distant country and one right here at home. And perhaps he's realizing that restoring them, that forgiveness and reconciliation, they're going to take some time. And they are going to depend on more than one person or more than one conversation between two people or more than one party. Perhaps he's realizing that his family's pain is shared, and so their healing must be shared also. There's truth in this, isn't there? There's truth in this that we all know from our own lives. There's truth in this reading of this story, and that's why it follows these other two parables, I think. Not to make the same point about repentance and restoration again, but to complicate that point, to move us from principle to the personal. As New Testament theologian scholar Amy Gillivine says, it is much harder to recover a child than a coin or a sheep. It is much harder, my friends, to recover from the ways we hurt and are hurt by the people who matter to us most. In fact, sometimes we can't, can we? At least not on our own or not on the desired timetable. Sometimes there's no principle or process, no compelling exhortation, no amount of determination by which we can get ourselves, by which we can force ourselves or others to forgiveness or reconciliation. That may make us feel helpless or hopeless, but there's no need for that, my friends, because there is Jesus Christ. There is Jesus Christ in whom we are reconciled and in whom we are being reconciled with God and with one another and through whom the power of forgiveness 
is already at work in our lives. So this parable tells the truth. It tells the truth about the importance of forgiveness and the difficulty of forgiveness and the possibility of forgiveness. And to comprehend all of that truth is to comprehend or understand the elder son, and it is to have compassion on him. Compassion is not indulgence or rationalization. It's not even niceness. It is rather a disciplined understanding of the other. And compassion is essential to the ministry of reconciliation, to the rebuilding of the web of relationships. Because, in my experience at least, people, wherever they are in that web of relationships, often need to feel safe and loved, often need to experience compassion before they can move to healing or forgiveness. And so, yes, in the wideness of God's mercy and justice, there is compassion for the elder son and for us and others when we've been hurt or betrayed or rejected and need for that to be acknowledged, when we need to feel safe again before we will let our defenses down. And there's compassion for the younger son and us when we have hurt someone and we're facing really difficult truths about ourselves and our actions and their consequences, and we're waiting and praying for forgiveness. And there's compassion for the Father and for us when we have lost or failed someone we love. There's compassion for us when people we love are fighting, when people in our family are fighting and it's breaking our hearts. There's compassion for each of these characters and for each of you, for all of us, when forgiveness or reconciliation takes time. And there is hope also. There is hope because Again, there is Jesus Christ in whom we are reconciled and in whom we are being reconciled. And there is Jesus Christ whose power of forgiveness is active even when we can't yet give or receive it. And so, in hope, in hope we persist in this patient and compassionate ministry of reconciliation. And we persist in hope, and we persist in prayer. And then one day, one day by the grace of God, we just may discover that forgiveness has happened. Thanks be to God. Amen.